Creative Babble. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, I don't often talk about my life, but Google has asked me today to do something that different and talk a little bit about my life, so I will do that. I had a great movie director write a, a film about my life. I had a great uh, Broadway musical team make a Tony Award-winning Broadway musical about my life. Most of those very creative people have actually never met me, personally. <laughs> <laughs> but they've enjoyed telling my story from their point of view. So. I thought I would take a few minutes this morning and actually tell you the story from uh, my point of view. I, like you, was shocked to discover that Frank Abagnale's story is greatly exaggerated, if not flat out completely made up. But once I accepted that, I was left with this unsettling feeling. A feeling that this guy's true life story is just plain creepy. Remember Paula Parks, the flight attendant from episode two? She describes Abagnale as a stalker who unexpectedly met her at airport gates from city to city. He was totally tracking her down. And I was flying to Washington, D.C., and I got to Washington and got off the plane, and there he was. Wow. I said, are you kidding me? I said, how did you know where I was going to be? Paula made the mistake of introducing Frank Abagnale to her parents. It only took one meeting for that con artist to slither his way into their lives. Like I say, he knocked on the door one day and he moved in with them. Were you as creeped out by this as much as I was? And I remember asking my mother, I said, did you invite him to live with y'all? And she said, well, that's just the way it kind of happened. I mean, it's, you know, we have your room. I said, he's sleeping in my room? And she said, yes. We already established that there's no way Frank Abagnale could have pulled off any of the stunts that made him famous. Instead, he was mostly sitting behind bars from the age of 16 to 21. When we last left off, Frank Abagnale was arrested on forgery charges and sentenced to 12 years in prison. But he only ended up serving two years and was released on parole. According to the fictional timeline that Abagnale has peddled around for almost 40 years now, he claims he was released from prison and was immediately recruited by the FBI. You know, because he's such a brilliant mastermind criminal. Today, we're going to take a break from his BS stories and focus on some of the repulsive accusations that were just recently unearthed by author Alan Logan. What you're going to hear is a pattern of predatory behavior that just can't be brushed off as, oh, but men used to treat women differently back in the day. You tell me if he crossed the line. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else.
In the movie Catch Me If You Can, the protagonist, teenage Frank Abagnale, is motivated by the desire to bring his divorced parents back together. But in the end, he fails. While I was sitting in that pitch black cell in France, my father, 57, was climbing the subway stairs of New York as he did every day. He was in great physical shape. He just happened to trip. He reached his arm to break his fall. He slipped, hit his head on a railing, landed at the bottom of the step. He was dead. I didn't know he was dead. I was thinking about him, how much I couldn't wait to see him, hold him, hug him, kiss him, tell him how sorry I was. But I never got the opportunity to do that. As it turns out, maybe his real motivation wasn't getting his parents back together. Instead, maybe he was driven by his overactive sex drive. Let me explain. In his very own autobiography, Avignale claims he flew all around the world with a flock of beautiful stewardesses. This is an excerpt from his autobiography, Catch Me If You Can. There will be no personal involvement with any of the girls. But my resolve was endangered a score of times during the course of the summer. Each of them was an outrageous flirt. And I, of course, was the prince of philanderers. And when one of the girls was inclined to make a sexual advance, and each of them did on several occasions, I was hardly prone to fend her off, but I always managed. In his press kit, which Abagnale used to propagate his story, there's a photograph of six Pan Am flight attendants, presumably the same ones who accompanied him around the world. But in reality, Abagnale never flew with these women. His face wasn't even on the picture. It was a complete and utter farce. The women in the picture were in an early 1970s version of the uniform, which is impossible because Abagnale claims he impersonated a pilot in the 60s, not the 70s. To complicate matters, the photograph features a black woman, reportedly one of the first African-American women hired as a flight attendant. That did not happen until 1971, when Abagnale was already in prison. The photo is likely part of Pan Am's press release to celebrate their historic effort to increase diversity. In his autobiography, Abagnale says he recruited women from the University of Arizona, and that part seems to be true. During his investigation, Ira Perry contacted the Director of Career Services at the University of Arizona, Ronald Hummel. He confirmed that Abagnale really was trying to recruit co-eds. Hummel said, and I quote, He just walked into the office one summer wearing his uniform and said he needed to recruit some girls. We got together six or seven one day and two or three the next day. But before anything happened, the FBI was here calling the girls. But wait a minute. If this part of the story is true, then why was Abagnale recruiting those girls? Was he really trying to fly with them all over the world? Eh, it seems like this 22-year-old's motivations were a little bit more perverse. Before we get into that story, I have to introduce you to a retired pilot and ex-CIA operative, Captain Paul Holson. I spoke with Paul Holson for 45 minutes on the phone. But let me tell you, that was an extraordinary 45 minutes. I sat back and listened to Holson describe stories of flying into the jungles of Central America while working for the CIA. I heard all about the famous political figures he's encountered throughout his career. This guy has lived an amazing life, and unlike Abagnale, his stories are probably true. Paul Holson is the real American hero Abagnale wishes he could be. Okay, alright, so you're probably asking, what does Paul Holson have anything to do with Frank Abagnale? 
Well, back before Holson was a pilot for the CIA, he was actually a student at the University of Arizona. The same University of Arizona that Abagnale used to recruit the flight attendants. You see, Holson wanted to line up a commercial airline pilot gig after graduation. And when he found out that there was a Pan Am pilot on campus recruiting students, he jumped at the opportunity. The Pan Am pilot, of course, was Frank Abagnale. He had told the university that he was only recruiting stewardesses. Holson thought it would still be good to meet with this Abagnale guy and make a connection. This is how Holson remembers the encounter from his book. And I quote, The day of the interview, I walked over to the hall to see a room of beautiful girls waiting. Holson says that what he didn't expect was the pilot, Frank Abagnale, conducting physical examinations on these women. Holson approached Abagnale and said, I didn't know pilots did this. Abagnale replies, Not only am I a pilot, but I'm a doctor too. I do everything, interviews and physicals. Holson must have thought to himself, this is extremely odd. Physicals? Why would a pilot need to conduct physicals on a flight attendant looking for a job? And what kind of physicals? Was Abagnale inappropriately touching these women? When Alan Logan first pointed me in the direction of Holson, I couldn't stop thinking about this. Maybe Abagnale never intended to fly with these girls around the world. Maybe he was just getting his jollies from feeling these co-eds up. If so, that is a very disturbing accusation. In his book, Holson says that that was the best interview he's ever had. The pilot gave him his number and said that in three weeks, they would fly him to New York. Three weeks later, Holson calls the number on the card and nobody knew anything about his interview, nor the mysterious pilot recruiter. The next day, Holson receives a call from the FBI. When the agents arrived to see him, they showed him a picture of the pilot. And they said, ever seen this fellow? That's when Paul Holson learned that the pilot he interviewed with was a phony. The agents informed Holson that Abagnale stole the uniforms, the credit cards, and worse yet, he wasn't even a doctor, Holson thought. But he did all these physicals on the girls. I had to ask Holson about this encounter, especially about the physicals. What exactly went on in that room? Holson told me that Frank Abagnale was doing quote-unquote exams, which was code for taking advantage of them, but he stopped short of going into specifics. I prodded him throughout our call, and he finally said, and I quote, there are some things that I will take to the grave. What? This is presumably so bad that he has to take this to the grave? I can only imagine. I offered to show Holson a 1971 University of Arizona yearbook to see if he could recognize any of the women that met with Abagnale that day. He says he has a copy of the yearbook, and it was just so long ago that he can't possibly remember exactly who was there. Holson says that for years he was furious with Abagnale for leading him on. I can imagine that was a real career setback for Holson. Years later, Paul Holson went to go see a local production of Catch Me If You Can, the musical, and you'll never guess who was there. Frank Abagnale. Holson told me that he approached Abagnale and told him, I don't know whether I should shake your hand or punch you in the face. In the end, he decided to shake the con man's hand. He even got himself a signed movie poster and book. When we were done with the interview, I sent Holson a thank you note for taking the time to talk with me. He replied and ended the email with, quote, be careful how you comment on the doctor ventures, unquote. Why was he so worried about this? Obviously, it was memorable enough for him to write it in his own autobiography. 
and is scared to even elaborate on it years later on our call. Again, what the hell happened in that room? What did Frank Abagnale do to those girls? If anyone listening to this right now went to the University of Arizona around 1971 who knows anything about this, I would love to know. The University of Arizona was not the only place Abagnale pulled this stunt. The Arizona Daily Star says that Abagnale also prowled the Arizona State University in Tempe, trying to recruit young women. Abagnale reportedly interviewed several ASU co-eds and told them that the top candidates would be flown to Los Angeles. But of course, Abagnale's recruitment efforts failed because after the University of Arizona and the Arizona State University incidents, that's when he started cashing in those airline payroll checks and finally the FBI was on his trail. It was over before it even started. But again, let's not forget what Paul Holson told me. Or better yet, what he couldn't tell me. A memory so vile and so disturbing that it had to be taken to the grave. A story so unforgettable that years later, Holson couldn't help but include it in his own autobiography. That's really all you need to know about Frank Abagnale. And I'm not trying to jump to conclusions here. Frank Abagnale himself brags about assaulting unsuspecting women. In several interviews, Abagnale openly acknowledges that he performed examinations on young women while impersonating a doctor. I even found this little soundbite from a speech that Abagnale gave at the National Automobile Dealers Association convention. Uh, Paul, I can't look at your leg. You need to go to your own doctor and have him look at that. One of the girls came by, I always gave them a thorough examination, sent them on their way. <laughs> I was young, but not stupid. Sexual assault was hysterical back in the day. When we return, we're going to look back at another strange chapter in Frank Abagnale's real life, a time he's never spoken about publicly. We spent the last three episodes talking about all the events in Frank Abagnale's life that didn't actually happen. The pilot, the doctor, the lawyer, you know, you know those stories. But what about the things that really did happen? There are a lot of holes in Abagnale's life that we just don't know about. But there's one time period that's just plain baffling. You see, there's a disturbing trend throughout his life where Frank Abagnale gravitates towards children and young adults. When he was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, living with the Parks family, Frank got involved with the church youth group. He wanted to volunteer at a program helping kids with mental disabilities. Even if you buy into his made-up story, why would a furloughed pilot want to quit an airline career to go work with local children? But we know he was not a pilot. In reality, you gotta ask yourself, why would a convicted felon, fresh out of prison, want to be anywhere near kids? Seems odd. Let's take a minute to review our place in the real Frank Abagnale timeline. From the age of 16 to almost 21, he was in and out of jail and prison. Shortly after being released, he moves in with the Parks. He was arrested again, gets released on parole, flees to Europe, gets arrested again. After sitting for two months in a French prison, Abagnale is deported back to the US where he finally gets busted for cashing bogus airline paychecks. Are you still with me? He served two out of the 12-year sentence and was released on parole. Fresh out of the penitentiary, he should be staying out of trouble. But instead, he wanders outside Houston city limits and into the small suburb of Friendswood, Texas, to hang out with kids who are away from their parents. 
This is where the story kind of takes a bizarre turn. Like I said, Abagnale was just released on parole. And one of the first things he does is drive to Camp Madison, a summer youth camp for kids. That's odd. Camp Madison is exactly what you picture summer camp in your head. The day begins with the bugle blasting over the camp intercom. Children of all ages line up in the mess halls to eat watery scrambled eggs. Once breakfast is over, they load up their BB guns, practice archery, and paddle canoes. Camp Madison was established by Tom Madison, a beloved veteran and local politician. The camp is no longer around, but ask any Texan in the area and they'll tell you that this camp was enjoyed by children across multiple generations. But it was the summer of 1974 that really stands out for some of the camp counselors who worked there. It was the year that a furloughed pilot showed up at Camp Madison out of nowhere. Why do you think Frank Abagnale went to this camp of all places? And I don't even know how he found it. This is Morris Fuselay, a teacher and artist who worked at Camp Madison in 1974. But he shows up in this car and he's got a he's got a Delta airline uniform and gets out. And were you there the day that he arrived? Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember him out in the parking lot. He just kind of showed up there and we never discussed that. Never, never, uh, never thought about it a whole lot. All why he ended up at that camp is is puzzling because it was pretty good at the time. It was pretty good ways out of Houston there yet. So it was kind of out in the woods. And, you know, there he was. That's so strange. And dressed in a pilot <laughs> uniform. So here you are, you're volunteering, you're, you're in your early 20s, and all of a sudden this pilot guy shows up. Ooh, that was weird, right? Because, like, who shows yeah. up dressed as a pilot to a camp, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's like, oh, I wonder who this guy. And, and it was kind of a, it was a believable story. Uh, because at the time, it was kind of in the midst of the, the gas shortage. If you were around in the 1970s, you'll remember the energy crisis when petroleum ran low and prices shot up high. So a lot of airlines had cut back on flights and pilots. And so he showed up and, and told uh, uh, Tom that he had been, uh, he had been furloughed uh, because of, of the energy crisis. And so he was just looking for a, a job to kind of hold him over until he got to go back to flying. So that seems plausible, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, he was just real, very convincing. So Tom Madison gave Abagnale a job. He could have been a lifeguard, coached volleyball, flipped burgers in the kitchen. But Frank Abagnale, a convicted felon, chose the role of shuttling kids back and forth to camp. Of all camp jobs, driving a van full of kids completely unsupervised? Hmm. Well, he was an arrogant person <laughs> to begin with, but he certainly was slick. I guess at the time he seemed like a lot older than us. If you if you've seen the camp picture, uh, I'm standing right next to him. Uh, he, he we we tend to think of him as being a lot older. I, I don't know if he really was, but I'm looking at the picture now, and so like he's to the right of you. And yeah, I got him like, You look like you're, you're what 21 years old or something. 21, like that? yeah. He yeah. looks like he's sporty with a receding hairline. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so everybody kind of, kind of treated him with a little bit of respect just because we thought he was older, you know, and, and he was, he was a womanizer and, and which is ultimately, I think what got him in trouble at our place uh, was, was he, he messed with the wrong girl. <laughs> and that girl was Jan Jackson, 
the camp counselor in charge of horseback riding. So I remember him coming and Mr. Manison, you know, he was super excited about him being there. And, you know, and he was telling us that he was, you know, a, a airline pilot that was on furlough. They thought, okay, you know, and he was there in his, you know, pilot's uniform, which, you know, being an airline pilot is not like being in the military. You don't wear your uniform, you know, when you're going somewhere. That's yeah. only for when you're going to work. Well, that that was my question for you. Is like, why would a pilot dress in uniform during his off time? Well, that was a, you know, I was like, well, that's weird, you know, because my dad, so, you know, was a pilot. When he came to Camp Madison, he said that he worked for Delta, which is who my dad was a pilot for. So I mentioned to my dad, hey, you know, this, you know, we got this guy here. His name, you know, his name is Frank Abagnale, and he says that he's a, you know, a pilot for Delta and he's on furlough. Except the red flag to him was is that Delta doesn't furlough. You know, there weren't any furloughed pilots then for Delta. And she's right. Delta Airlines did not force any pilots or crew to work less hours during this time period. Something about this pilot guy just didn't sit well with Janet Jackson. So then my dad started asking around and nobody knew Frank. Well, nobody seemed to know him and he says he's on furlough, but you know, that Delta didn't have any furloughed pilots. And so then I think as he would think about it, he would ask different people, you know, hey, have you ever heard of this guy, you know, Frank Abagnale? Jan Jackson's father was on a mission to figure this guy out. Meanwhile, back at Camp Madison, Frank Abagnale was settling in. But he brought us out to the club one night and, and bought us all drinks. He was kind of the, the slick guy of the 70s. I mean, he had the, the satin print shirts and, the, you know, unbuttoned two or three buttons and, uh, and uh, always had a really spiffy gold watch on. And, and, you know, we were just a bunch of college kids. Frank figured out pretty quickly that Morris was a talented artist with impeccable craftsmanship. And if I, if I recall, he came out and he wanted to talk to me about doing this card for him and told me he was the president of the Delta's employee, Delta Employees Club. And, uh, and so he wanted, they, wanted this, they wanted a new ID and he wanted it to look like this. Basically, Abagnale wanted Morris to create him an airline ID card. And so he hands me this, this ID that, that looked, you know, I didn't know what a Delta ID looked like. I went, oh, okay, you know, I, can you do that? And I said, you know, can you do that? I'll pay you $125. And I said, sure. You know, I mean, that's probably twice what I made in a week at the camp. So I said, absolutely. So we went to a, an office supply place and, and bought all the supplies and went and bought a, a model airplane somewhere. And so I would go out in this little cabin and I'd work on this card. So I give him this card and he goes, oh man, that's great. And so he laminates this thing. And I mean, it looks like, uh, looks like a, a Delta ID card. You know I mean? It was, it was a, it was a great card, had his picture on it, his name, all that sort of business. Back on the other side of camp, Jan Jackson was putting all the pieces together. She saw right through this guy when no one else did. The pilot uniform, the arrogance, the cheap smile. It was all an act. And then my dad, you know, he called me and he said, that guy doesn't work for Delta. He said, I can't find anybody that knows him. And, you know, I've had some people check and he doesn't work for Delta. 
Well, so then back at the camp, uh, the girls started getting, you know, together. And Frank really, he needed to be cooled off a little bit. We had this speech made up, you know, that we had come up with. And the last line of the speech was, you know, you think you're really hot and we think that you need to cool off. Well, when she said that, I had a five-gallon bucket of ice water. And I stepped out of a building. He was standing, you know, with his back to me. And I stepped out of the building and I poured that five-gallon bucket of ice water over his head. Oh, God. And uh, he got so angry. And, um, I mean, there was no humor in that for him at all. And he had this comb over. He was bald about probably at least halfway, you know, back. And well, of course that, you know, messed all that up and he was all wet and he was embarrassed. He was mad and he had something. I don't remember. It wasn't a knife, but it was like a box cutter or a, it was something. And he pulled that out and threatened me, you know, But he was really angry, and he, you know, he threatened me and kind of came at me with whatever that was he had in his hand. But anyway, we never saw him again. He left that day and never came back. We woke up one day, and Frank was gone, and uh, and so was my ID card. And the ID card ended up his undoing because he tried to change it. What was he trying to do? Change uh, some details of it? He was trying to get out of the country. That's when the FBI called me. So, so it's like, I don't know, September, October, at my house, the phone rings. Morris was there. Yes, Morris was there. Uh, do you, do you, know, you know Frank Abigail? Yeah, I know Frank. Say, well, well uh, you know, did you do an ID card for him? Sure did. Well, why did you do an ID card? So I tell him the story, and he goes, uh, he goes well, uh, well, we just caught him trying to leave the country with it. And he said he had tried to alter it. And, and I said, well. He'd have, he'd have made it if he wouldn't altered it because it looked exactly like an ID card. And I, my suspicion is what he tried to do was take out off the lamination and change the name. And, and it, it didn't go well for him. Right, right. It kind of ruined it. No, that's, that's crazy. So and, that's, and that's, yeah. how, that's how he ended up. Yeah, that's how he ended up getting caught. So, so I end up talking to Tom Madison about it. And he said, well, you know, I think he stole a bunch of cameras from me. And, and, and Tom was a big photographer. He had a bunch of used cameras. And so he sent, he sent uh, Frank down to, uh, to Houston to sell them at a resale shop. And Frank comes back, says somebody had broken into the car and stolen them. And, and you know, he never to be seen again. Uh, after, <laughs> after he ditched, Tom, I think, kind of figured out that perhaps he had stolen them himself and pawned them. Frank Abagnale was also accused of stealing money from the camp's account. Frank would come in, he'd fill the bus up that he drove around during the day, and he'd come back and he'd hand him a receipt, he'd rip off a bunch of money and hand it to him. So it took him a while before he caught up with that little ploy. Morris Fuselet and Tom Madison, the camp organizer, contacted local law enforcement and eventually took Abagnale to court. We went to court and he and his girlfriend were there. They're, they're at the hearing and at, the, at the, the, the hearing before the justice of the peace. And so, 
he orders him to pay me the $125 back. Did he but ever I, pay you? Did he ever repay you the well, $125? Uh, his girlfriend did. <laughs> she would she would send me a check. I got four. It didn't quite make it to 125, but I got four checks. Once a month, I would get a $25 check for, for four months. And and uh, then she they kind of ditched on the on the fifth check. But uh, I, I may be the only person that ever recovered any money from him that he owed anyone. You are one of the only victims that he actually paid. Well, you know, when I first heard the story about Cap Camp Madison and all that, I always thought that, well, maybe the reason why he was there was because of the girls. But, you know, it was he it, that was his vice. Yeah. But but you're saying that he was there with, uh, with possibly his wife or uh, well, I think I think there was a girlfriend or something that 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 somebody somebody ended up. I want to say meeting, maybe I, I don't, I don't completely recall, but when he came to the hearing, uh, it, uh, it maybe a year later or less than a year later, there was a, a woman with him and that was the girl that paid me the, I, I didn't remember her name. That's okay. Because I actually do know her name. In fact, I've been corresponding with Abigail's ex-girlfriend for weeks now. She asked for me to keep her identity anonymous. This girlfriend, who we're going to call JR, lived with Frank Abagnale when he was paroled to Houston, Texas between October 1973 to roughly October 1975 when he was running the grift at Camp Madison. Author Alan Logan was able to identify JR while interviewing several people associated with Camp Madison. They named her as being the girl who was seen with Abagnale at camp. Morris Fuselet also pointed to her as a person who paid Abagnale's restitution. After Logan confirmed her identity, he was able to dig up some lawsuits with her name on it. There were two lawsuits, one from a department store called Montgomery Ward and the other from Spring Bank. Both of these lawsuits happened to coincide with Frank Abagnale and JR's breakup. We couldn't help but wonder, were any of these debts related to Abagnale's scams? Talking with JR would give us a window into a mysterious time period during Abagnale's life. She did confirm what we suspected. In a text message to me, JR told me, quote, Any debt incurred, you can definitely attribute to Frank Abagnale. He was always a tremendous womanizer, and personally, I don't think that a zebra changes its stripes, regardless of what he says, unquote. I asked JR how she met Frank Abagnale, and this is what she said. I was sitting in a coffee shop in the Houston airport on my way back from orientation at the University of Houston, and he came and sat down in a booth next to me, completely out of the blue. Then, when I got on my flight, he came and sat down next to me. I was very young, 17 years old, and very impressionable. So here we have a 22-year-old man who's prowling around the airport trying to pick up 17-year-old girls. Hmm. Well, let me finish reading you JR's message. We proceeded to Dallas and went on a date to Six Flags over Texas. He stayed in town for several days and met my family. He actually took my younger brother and sister on a tour of the Pan Am facility. They were like 12 and 10 years old at the time and were very impressed. Apparently my mother trusted him enough to let my brother and sister go with him. Pretty scary when you think about it now, she says. So here you have this guy who's injecting himself into yet another family, claiming to be a pilot and taking these young kids on a tour with him. Then JR texted me and said that after that, he just kind of disappeared. Then I never heard from him again until I was living at the University of Houston that next fall. 
At some point, I started receiving letters from him from a P.O. box in Virginia. As I came to know later, that's when he was incarcerated in the federal penitentiary. I asked JR, then how did you end up with all his debts? He talked or you could say conned me into taking out credit cards in my name, which he used to run up the debt. He also got a key to my mailbox and applied for credit cards in my name that I didn't even know about at the time. Then he would get a secondary card issued in my name. I found out about it later when all the bills started rolling in. I wound up having to file for bankruptcy. So much for not hurting the little guy, she says. And I'm sure I'm not the only girl that has been conned out of money. That was not a really good time for me. Our relationship pretty much ended after that. That's cold, man. That's cold. Ripping off your own girlfriend, leaving her behind with your debt, and destroying her financially to the point where she had to file for bankruptcy? That's low. Every time I talk to someone who's encountered Frank Avignal, I can't help but imagine a Viking raiding and pillaging every village he happens to land on. He doesn't seem to have a cooling off period. The moment he gets out of prison, he's immediately in search for a new conquest. Here's Morris Fuselay, the art teacher at Camp Madison again. When he encountered you, he had just left the federal correctional institution in in Virginia. Wow. And, 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 I, I, and, and my guess is that that's why he kind of went to a little obscure place. I yeah, mean, very strange. But you know, it's no. funny, after he got arrested for stealing from the camp, he was sitting in jail at a Galveston County jail. And but that is supposedly the time when he was paroled to Houston and claiming to be working for the FBI. So <laughs> oh wow. It's a little it's a little disappointing that you you know you here you are thinking you you know you got you got robbed by this really uh uh, you know, high-class criminal, it turns out he's just he's just a street punk. And here's camp counselor Jan Jackson again. He just acted like he thought that we all thought as much of him as he thought of himself. And, you know, we just, you know, he, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't your pool guy, you know. <laughs> that you that you know you wanted to watch and uh, he had the confidence of the pool guy <laughs> he definitely had the confidence but nothing else <laughs> so all jokes aside remember frank abagnale was just released from a federal penitentiary when he decided to work at camp madison under false pretenses this is the 26-year-old man driving children back and forth to camp. Then he gets busted. So what does he do next? You guessed it. He applies to work at an orphanage. You can't make this stuff up. A freaking orphanage. And how do we know this? Because his parole officer, Jim Blackman, told me when I called him one afternoon. Hi, I was wondering if I could speak with Jim Blackman. Yeah, but who are you? Oh, my name's Javier Leva. Fresh from his stay at Camp Madison, Abagnale calls up his parole officer and tells him that he's working at this children's home. Uh, the Pelchin, Pelchin Children's Home. Ah, uh, okay. I know that was hard to understand, but the orphanage was called the Pelchin. Jim Blackman, his parole officer, was alarmed. Blackman told me that Abagnale called him and told him that he was placing kids in foster homes. That position requires experience and an academic degree. He had a false master's in, in social work. He was placing children in foster homes. 
And why do you think that? Do you think he, because he seems to gravitate towards children. Like he seems to really enjoy being around them, right? Well, he was, he was in one for a long period of time when he was young. He was what now? He was in a, a home when he was young. Oh, I see. So you think he has that connection, right? Like, that he was... Well, I guess, I guess he is. It's a little hard to understand Jim Blackman, but he basically confirmed what we suspected, that Abagnale was most likely living at a delinquent home at the age of 16, right before he joined the Navy. So how did this high school dropout land a social worker job without any experience? His parole officer says that he forged a master's degree. Then I went back the next day and I found his uh, master's degree in social work. Wow, and they were all fake? I guess he forged them all? Oh, yeah, he forged everything. He forged, yeah. Jim Blackman rushed over to the orphanage and made Abagnale resign on the spot. And why Why didn't you turn him in at that point? Like, wasn't that kind of... Well, no, 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 why send him to prison? The parole officer says he decided not to turn Abagnale in and gave the con man a second chance. Jim Blackman wasn't just his parole officer from 1974 to 1979. He was also kind of a father figure for Abagnale. After the orphanage incident, Blackman told Abagnale, hey, I have this space, you know, it's, it's a converted garage behind my house. Do you want to move in? He told reporters that if I'm going to help him, I've got to be right on top of him. When we come back, we're going to hear from Frank Abagnale's former booking agent, who says that Frank Abagnale nearly destroyed his life. For those of you at home keeping track, Abagnale went from prison to working at a kid's camp, then he rips a bunch of people off, he gets busted, and then gets a job at an orphanage of all places. That's what really happened. But if you switch over to the fictional timeline Abagnale has been spouting off for decades, this whole time, instead of working at the camp and the orphanage, he's been secretly working undercover for the FBI. But it's during this time period, this period in time, presumably while he's living in his parole officer's garage, that the myth of Frank Abagnale starts taking shape. And to understand this time period better, I reached out to someone from Abagnale's past who knows him best, a man who traveled alongside Abagnale for years. His name is Mark Zinder. He's the man responsible for lining up speaking opportunities for Abagnale. You're, but you were saying you were saying that none of it is true. None of it's true. None of it's true. You know, it's safe to say that Mark Zender and Abagnale are on the outs. And before we get started, here is the DVD of the movie. And if you look closely, you'll notice it hasn't been opened. I've never seen the movie. And why is that? Why haven't you watched the movie? You can't bring yourself to watch it. No, it was. Um, you know, now it's been 40 years and time heals all wounds, but it was pretty horrific while it was unfolding. You know, there was a threat on my life with regards to it. Mark Zinder claims Abagnale threatened his life, ruined his career, and left him broke. When I said none of it's true, is I, I used to travel with him. Uh, he, he, would, he would do 100 speeches, 200 speeches a year, and I would go with him to these speeches. 
Mark Zender became Abagnale's booking agent in 1978, in between his appearance on To Tell the Truth and right before he penned his autobiography, Catch Me If You Can. I'll work with this man for years. I mean, I, 24-7, I swam in his pool. I knew his children. I, you know, we slept in the same hotel room together. I just, you know, I knew this man. He was there witnessing the myth starting to take shape. Take, for instance, the infamous hooker story. Eight o'clock, I pulled up at the mayor's home in the Rolls Royce. And then all of a sudden, I saw a beautiful young lady, about 24 years old, sitting up at the bar. Absolutely gorgeous. Joe was very impressed with who I was, and we started talking. <laughs> so she said, why don't you make me an offer? I remember having lunch with him once, and we spoke to a lot of bankers' associations. And a banker told that story as a joke. I mean, it was a joke, right? And then the next day, it's worked its way into Frank's presentation. And now, the joke is, the joke is that he forged a check to pay the prostitute, right? So Cheryl gave me 400 change. We both got screwed that night. Sure, well, the, the joke is they both got screwed, right? right. <laughs> Here's the punchline. Right. And, and so I thought, okay, he's added this just as some, you know, some relief to the audience. You know? and, and, and so I didn't really think that much of it, even though I knew I had heard the joke the day before. Even though you're seeing some of these things happen before your very eyes. I mean, you were there when the joke happened. You were there when that joke manifested itself and became part of his lore, you know, like on right. stage. He's telling people like this actually happened to him. Right. And all the while, you're still mesmerized by this guy. Like, right. Like, it's not in your world. This can't possibly be a lie. Right. At the time. Well, remember, I was I was fresh out of college. I went to a, a conference and heard him speak, and I thought, oh, this would be a great speaker. It was perfect. Abagnale needed help finding new speaking gigs, and Zinder was looking for a new talent to represent. It was real easy for me to sell him. I mean, I, it, was just, it was a great story. It had a great moral. 20, don't try to be someone you're not. I could have been any of these people if I had stayed in school, but I didn't stay in school. So it had a good story. Mark Zender booked Abagnale at colleges throughout the country. Abagnale was his top act. Wherever he went, Zinder would go along with him. And yes, we would, we would bunk together. We would we'd be in the hotel room together. He had all this money, and he would insist that you would share a room, even though he was perfectly capable of getting his own room. Yeah, without question. I think the story was nothing more. And, and I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it's kind of true. It, 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 was, it was for him to... to Defined female companionship. Let me put it that way. And uh, and he had a libido that just wouldn't stop. Yeah, he said that women were was his vice. But I remember once we got back to his hotel room and there was a young girl sitting by the door and he just went Z, you know, and he used to call me Z, Z, <laughs> which meant go to the lobby. And then and then he, and then an hour and a half later he came down and then he pick up another girl and back up to the room. I'm still in the lobby. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. We get back to the hotel room. It's midnight now and hires a prostitute and same thing. You know, it's like, how? <laughs> how? In the so, yeah, it was it was uh, it's kind of like a band member, right? <laughs> I'm the lead <laughs> just to, to, to meet girls. Mark Zinder and Frank Abagnale had a falling out. Zinder says that Abagnale destroyed his career and left him for broke. And we're going to get into that story in the next episode. But put aside the financial hardship. Zinder says that Abagnale ruined his personal life, too. 
More than 20 years after their professional relationship ended, Mark Zinder and Frank Abagnale cross paths again. So all of a sudden I'm at this airport and I hear, Z! And that's what he used to call me, right? And I look around and there he is, right? I often wondered what I would do, you know, when, when, I, when I saw him. And he's got his hand stretched out, you know, walking towards me, kind of like nothing ever happened. And we shake hands. And so we start talking. And then he asked about Fran. Fran is Mark Zinder's ex-wife. She was around during the time that Zinder represented Abagnale. Mark Zinder recalls a day when Fran was alone with Abagnale. He told me that something happened that day. She wouldn't say what, but Fran was never the same again. That's why he felt sick to his stomach when Frank Abagnale approached him years later at that airport. Frank says, hey, you know, how's Fran doing? Well, Frank, that, that didn't work out. I, said, I always meant to apologize for that. Apologize for what? I didn't say it, but apologize for what? So, I don't know. Friend, friend refused to speak. We don't talk. I have no idea what happened. But so Frank not only ruined me financially, but he did a number on me personally as well. So at the beginning, when you said, he said that he's never hurt anybody, nah, it's bullshit. Next time on Pretend... We are going to look into this whole claim of Frank Abagnale working for the FBI for the last 40 years. I talked to former NSA agents, a former FBI agent, and I got word from the FBI themselves. I wonder what they're going to say when I ask them a very simple yes or no question. Does Frank Abagnale work for the FBI? And I fly to Las Vegas to meet Frank Abagnale in the flesh. Except he doesn't know I'm coming. And I'm going to meet him backstage after his speech. Hey, Mr. Abagnale, I'm doing a podcast covering the event. So for six years, we evaded the, the FBI, uh, pretending to be a pilot, a doctor, a professor. But how were you able to do that if you were like sitting in prison the whole time? Uh, no, when this was all before. I went to prison for all those And things. seriously, guys, I'm not overhyping this. What he told me changes everything. That's next time on Pretend. I hope you guys are enjoying this series and I want to welcome the GIST listeners, Mike Pesca at the GIST. He is one of my idols. I love that podcast. He was kind enough to also mention the series on his show. So I hope you go check out The Gist, the August 16th episode of The Gist, where Mike Pesca, my personal hero, mentions pretend. Super cool milestone for this show. Also, if you want to listen to part five, it's coming. Seriously, I'm putting it together. This is the big one. This is the one where I confront Frank Abagnale in Las Vegas, and it will be up on Patreon as soon as possible. So if you want to listen to part five before anyone else, go to pretendradio.org, hit the donate button. You're supporting the show. And as soon as episode five is ready, it will be sitting in your inbox. I promise it is awesome. Also, please follow me on Twitter, 
Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. I'm at Pretend Pod, or just search for Pretend Podcast on any of those platforms. I'd love to hear from you guys. And also, it's been a long time since you guys have left a review on the show, and that's partly my fault because I never re- remind you. But leaving a review, it's actually really helpful for podcasters because it helps other people discover the show. So please, if you can't support me on Patreon, leave a review. I'd love to know what you think, and you'll be helping out the show by letting other people discover it. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day, and I will talk to you next time. 1960s to the early 1990s, the United States saw an unprecedented surge in serial killing, which was not just in dynamic changes of the post-war period, but in the development of the human psyche going back many millennia to our ancient past wonder why serial killers exist, why they emerged, and why they exploded in the post-war United States? Check out The Golden Age of Murder, a panoramic look at serial killing focusing on the United States in the post-war period, a podcast that goes beyond serial killer profiles to dig into why serial killers exist and to find out why the 1960s, the 1990s is the apogee of serial murder. This is the golden age of serial murder with your hosts, Toby and Simi. Creative Babble.